You're listening to Intelligent Data, a podcast by Proficient. Proficient is a global digital consultancy that's transforming how the world's biggest brands connect with customers and grow their businesses. Throughout this series, you'll learn how valuable data is today and how it can transform your business. And now here's our host, Arvind Morali, Data Chief Strategist and Principal at Proficient. Hello and welcome to the Intelligent Data Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear Bill Bush discuss the trends in big data, the key difference in data strategy between the edge big data use cases versus the analytic big data use cases, the importance of uh, data classification and data governance in the world of big data, but more importantly, uh, from a data quality and data usage perspective, he touches a lot on the data ethics. Hope you have some fantastic takeaways from our show. So Gartner mentioned that 85% of the big data projects fail. However, done right, big data can revolutionize and shape data-driven digital transformation and engagement. Now, this applies to many industries, retail, energy, automotive, manufacturing, and healthcare, to name a few. So here, to share more information on big data is our industry leader in this space, who has not failed big data implementations. Bill Bush is a Chief Strategist and Big Data Practice Director at Proficient. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, Hey, can you introduce yourself and your role at Proficient, Bill? Yeah, my name is Bill Bush, and I'm a Chief Data Strategist. Um, What that really means is I help clients make decisions around modern data architectures and leveraging data for to make better decisions. Thank you, Bill. So let me start with this. 85% of big data projects fail. That's a staggering statistic. Why, in your opinion, does big data project fail? Is it the scale, the size? What, what, What are your thoughts? My thoughts are it starts with focus. There are a number of projects that I have seen where the focus has been, let's create a data lake, and it's IT driven. Generally, that's not going to work well. One client that I was at was building a data lake, and they didn't have any data scientists to go use the data once they put the data in the data lake. Successful clients usually focus their big data initiatives around a business outcome, whether or not they are doing e-commerce, digital transformation, or customer experience optimization supply chain optimization, there's a reason you bring your data in, do analytics on it, and and get value out of it to make better decisions. Gotcha. So I heard you say three things in your reasoning of why big data projects fail. So the number one you said was focus with an emphasis on business outcome. The number two is the usage itself, right? And then which is basically your data scientists or analysts actually using what is created. And then number three, do not have a IT-driven tech project. Focus more on what is the value of this data. You have summarized that very well. And, you know, I think it really goes back to you're not going to be able to build it, build a data lake, and people will just come to it. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that, that makes sense. Let's jump into that strategy a little bit further. I'm going to start with the usage part that you mentioned. 
I'm hearing a lot about this edge computing, a lot of devices. You know, one of my friends in the industry actually mentioned digital transformation is a way to generate more data and to create and identify new ways of using that data. In other words, it's all about big data. What is your thought on that usage part, the strategy behind and say an edge computing driven big data project versus an analytics driven big data project? How, how does the strategy change in both these sides? I think in both cases, it goes to data that comes in from devices predominantly is very verbose. In other words, there's a lot of context information. There's just a lot of, if somebody would look at it, it'd be pretty much gibberish. It wouldn't make too much sense. It's handshakes and connectivity issues, those types of things, all right? What you have to do in edge computing is actually filter out all those messages behind the scenes and all that, what I call gibberish data, and you want to get to the actual data element that means something. And, and that tends to be a, a somewhat challenging. The other thing that companies, I think, along with 5G, don't realize is how much scalability they need on the networking and the processing side to be able to do this. You have all these devices out there, and what, what ends up happening is, is at certain times of the day, people tend to do certain things. So when you get up in the morning, you, you might check your email. Well, just think about this around if you have an application out there of some type, and it might be ESPN's application, or it might be some type of media company's application where people are going to go check the sports scores from the night before. All that is going to happen within a very set amount of time in the morning, or not all of it, most of it is. So you got to plan for those peaks. This kind of leads into the data strategy then has to probably include something along the lines of scalability and, and elasticity. And this is where the cloud usually is coming in nowadays. You're going to see a lot of these data-driven companies or, or companies where data is, is what they're all about, like like Uber, they choose to be on the cloud to get that elasticity. So when you're dealing with thousands, millions, tens of millions of devices, you need to have that elasticity and you got to plan for it in your data acquisition and how you're going to go acquire that data. Gotcha. I, I like the way you kind of put this in perspective, right? So when, when we're thinking edge computing, you mentioned a very, very important point, which is content without context. There might be a lot of data, but really it doesn't mean much. And you were saying gibberish, right? That, that's, that's absolutely spot on. But there's also the aspect of scalability and elasticity where really, if you don't have the horsepower to go get this data and in real time make sense out of it, what's the value of all that data? It then becomes to this genre called dark data, which a lot of people use, which is data that is there, but not really being used, right? Now, what's your take on the, for lack of a better word, traditional big data projects, which is more analytics driven? It doesn't matter whether it's real time or batch. Uh, but the focus here is I want to correlate this data to a meaning. What are your thoughts on that? What's the strategy behind that? Where companies have challenges here is they become a little impatient. A lot of times you bring the data in and your data scientist goes and says, you know what? I can't model this. I cannot come up with an analytical model to make this prediction. But I think if you go get me these other two data sets and bring that in, then, that, then it should work. What, what people are 
you know, they're, they're, they're thinking this is the magic, you know, some kind of magic potion. You just bring all the data together and it's going to give you an answer. That's not how it works. How it works is you bring some data in, you let your data scientists go and investigate that data, build some models towards a, some type of business objective, and you're going to learn something. Now, you might learn that you don't have enough data or that this data doesn't predict the outcome, but you're at least learning that and that you have to then react to that. I, I think a lot of executives don't realize there is an iterative approach that needs to be put here, and sometimes it's going to take a little while to get those answers. Now, IT does not help itself when it says, oh, it's going to take three months for me to put that data out in the lake for you. And that's where IT needs to really look at its data strategy. It's like, how fast can we get the data in the lake so that you can use it to really drive that iteration time down so it's much more agile and acceptable to the business? Fair enough. Fair enough. And does the company's culture play a big part here? Because data science, while the practice itself is very mature, the actual implementation, which is use do something with the outcome of data science, is still very new to a lot of organizations. Do you think they're adopting to the fact that the agile, fail-fast approach versus, hey, I need some time to figure out what the data says? That might be, I need more data, but you should be ready for those kind of answers from your scientists, right? How, what, how do you think culture fits here? I think that that's the case. If we talk about culture, where we see culture really interrupting the process is around data security. I'll, I'll give you an example. One large financial services institution went out and they had this capability. It was an awesome capability. They had a data marketplace. And I could say, I'd like a data mart with these two subject areas in it. And you know, I want it for three years. And it would automatically go put that into whatever system you wanted, so whatever sandbox you wanted, so that the data scientists could actually do the analysis that they needed. It is a beautiful set of technology. They even implemented all the data security controls. So when he or she would put the request in, it would send out emails to the different people that would have to approve the use of the data you know, around that data security. But that approval process to get all the different approvals that were needed took two to three weeks. Well, okay, what, what good is something that will build a data mart over, overnight if it takes two to three weeks to get all the approvals? That gets into the culture, and that's usually where companies really struggle. And going through and looking at your security processes, everybody wants to make sure the data is secure. Well, you got to look at, there, there's a cost to securing data, and fact of securing data, if it prevents you from getting business value from the data, then why even have the data anyway? And that's something that companies need to work through and they got to look at their processes and people have to be comfortable with being able to authorize and, and allowing people to use the data and having those processes to trust their folks, trust but verify, trust that their data scientists are going to do what they need to do and use the data appropriately. Gotcha. But then I'm going to play the devil's advocate here and ask you a question on data security, right? Especially with Edge, there's going to be a lot more devices generating a lot more data. Obviously, the data we're talking about are personally identifiable information kind of data sets. If there's minimal or no kibosh on security, how can you make sure that the data is not used for the wrong purposes? I mean, data scientists are, after all, trying to figure things out. 
what kind of compliance or, or ethics you want to put in place? Actually, I like the ethics term there at the end because part of it is is to really make sure that your data scientists or people using this data understand data ethics and understand your company's data ethics and, and their, their take on it. But the other thing that, that we see is that there's a huge difference between securing uh, some PII information, right? PII is, is pretty mature in its definition now, and it's usually a few fields in, in most data sets. Uh, those fields, unfortunately, a lot of times get replicated throughout different entities or different tables. But the, the focus should be on, A, do I really need that information? In my analysis, you should have the ability to easily filter that information out, filter those columns out if you don't need it. And then the user or the data scientist should actually be kind of, um, I'll use a, a term like rewarded by not having to go through as much paperwork or approvals to get the data if they do that. And what companies tend to do is that they want, they overlay this governance and security across everything and treat everything like it's PII. And, and that's where they really have challenges as opposed to having a data categorization where PII is at the govern, you know, we're gonna get in trouble with the government if we don't secure this, then your next categorization is confidential is usually what we use. This is data that is sensitive to our business options that we don't want our competitors to see. And then there's kind of more general use data. It's like, well, yeah, you don't want it to go out of the company, but, if you're working for our company, then you should be able to have access to this, right? So there's there's three, and sometimes it's four or five different levels of data, and you got to secure each one separately with separate rules. That way, you focus on the your efforts, which your efforts are usually limited, or how much money you can put on these things, to the data that needs to be secured, and only those elements. This kind of also leads into governance a little bit, but the banks. When we implemented back last decade, the Basel II Accords or regulations around that, the banks that were successful focused on the 34 elements that really were determined, the, the, the risk-weighted assets and, and all the different attributes for Basel II compliance. But there, it really got down to you know, a couple dozen attributes. At some banks, they really limited. Others got into a couple hundred. But the bottom line is, is that they focused it on those areas and they made sure that that data was quality, secured, and governed appropriately. The banks that went and said, well, we're going to use this to drive our whole data governance program kind of boiled the ocean and didn't go anywhere. And, and, and that's the lesson around that. That's fantastic. Since you've started the governance uh, side of things, let's talk about that, right? You mentioned uh, an example about the Basel II regulatory setup. That's, to me, more structured data. To your point, it's classified, it's defined. There are government websites that mandates what these are. Let's talk about unstructured data. In, in the world of big data, especially large data sets, which are unstructured, what are your thoughts on data governance? I mean, how can organizations not necessarily control data, but put some policies around that unstructured, semi-structured, large data sets and make sure they understand how to use it meaningfully and effectively. Well, how can they go about the data governance for those kind of big data sets? I think that enterprises need to 
have a goal for their data governance activities, especially around data. The example in the Basel II Accords was really there was a business outcome that needed to happen. And then, but if your focus is on putting up steering committees, identifying stewards and things like that, then your focus is in the wrong place. With the unstructured data, you're going to need to look at it from some different perspectives. One of them is going to be a lot more ethical use. And then the other one is there's there's some privacy issues now. If you're getting photos in and people are in those photos, then you got to have uh, some policies around the, the acceptable use of, of that information because now you, you start really getting into privacy issues. Yeah, you don't want to be another Cambridge Analytica scandal, right? I mean, especially with the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world being used in day-to-day lives. But that's correct. And even Facebook has had challenges around this because they use pictures. And then in order to validate that somebody's logging on to the account or whatever, you got to identify people in those pictures. And that brings up some privacy issues because a lot of those pictures are drawn from, you know, not from your own website, but from others that, oh, do you even have access to some of those pictures? So those are types of things that, that, that you got to address. And the other thing that you have to also think about is that you know, I'm not a legal expert in this area, but we have some laws out in California and in Europe around data privacy, but there's some less restrictive laws at the federal government level. But the law around this area of this unstructured data is not as well defined as it is around the structured data area. That is a fantastic point. So you're talking about GDPR, CCPA kind of constituents? Yes. How do you go about making sure, at least as an organization, even if compliance policies are not necessarily set, how do you still govern that data? I think this is where data ethics really comes into play. If you have a culture around data ethics and using this data ethically, and this is a a perception issue because you've got to look at your customers or the customers viewing you as using the data ethically versus from a business point of view, you might view those ethics are different. But you got to really have that culture. We're going to use this data ethically. Then the other thing you have to go do is at least from a, a sense of reasonableness, secure the data. And, you know, maybe you can't get down to specific data elements and securing it that way, but at least secure the big data set at the perimeter or to certain groups like marketing or your data scientist group that, that need it. Those are the two things that I, I, I really think that companies need to focus on as legal cases come forward and, and what have you. They'll be in, at least they should be in pretty good place if something happens. That makes sense. Let, let's uh, let's shift from compliance to quality. So with big data, you've got big quality issues, data quality that is, right? How do you see your clients if not alleviate, maybe reduce the impact of data quality and focus on good data served to analytics purposes? What are some of the things they can do? Well, I I think what they need to do is have a way of managing the data quality in, I would say, a little bit more of a reactive way. So you got to prove to me that there's a problem first. A lot of times I go in and clients say, hey, my customer data is inaccurate. It's like, well, okay, what, what is inaccurate about it? And then they, they can't quantify it or you know, what use case is inaccurate? I, I went to one healthcare payer and they said, well, our customer data, if, if we talk to our claims people, 
the customer data was pretty good. Well, you'd probably think that that, that actually kind of made sense because from their perspective, it, it was good because if it wasn't good, then they would be losing money. But if you went into the, the quality of care areas where they're using data scientists and what have you, they were saying, well, it is not good. And being able to quantify that, and then once you quantify it, tie it back to a business cost is what's really important. Then you can go address it. You can get funding for addressing it and, and, and fixing it. Data scientists tend to tell you when there is a data quality problem. In other words, if they don't have a certain field that they need filled out and, and that affects the quality of the analysis, they will be able to tell you that. So if you're dealing with a million customers and you lose, say you lose 20% of those in your analysis or whatever because of data quality issues, you're still going to get a pretty decent model out of it. You're, you most likely will get a decent model out of it. So you may not need to address that. There's other issues that, that, that you may need to address depending on the, the business outcome that is desired. I'm loving this because you're not necessarily contradicting, but complementing this this whole uh, area called total data quality management. And you're saying, that's great, but first I need to know what it is used for because one person's opinion of data quality might be relevant to the way they're using it uh, and will be different from another person's opinion on data quality, right? Even though data itself is not an opinion. That is 100% correct. And part of any kind of total quality initiative involves measuring. And this is one of the things that I see companies not do, which is to measure their data quality. So if they're going to go govern something, so maybe it's PII information, or maybe it's something like that's very important, like a sales number, or it might be your organizational hierarchy. You need to be able to measure the data quality on those things that are important to you and actually have a report on it. And you know, a drillable dashboard really kind of helps here. And that ends up quantifying where the problems are. Gotcha, that, that's fantastic. Let's jump into some of the tech trends that are out there. <laughs> you know, one thing I'm hearing constantly from the customers is this ability called data virtualization. How, what do you think uh, is the reality behind this to scale up to big data? Can data virtualization be scalable? The answer to that question is yes, if you put enough resources behind it. The challenge with data virtualization is that, you know, at the transactional level, if, if you want to go and say you, you have some type of customer experience application or a call center application and you want to see the history for one one customer. That software exists, Donato exists. There's a number of data virtualization techniques out there. That works pretty well because what you're doing is you're only pulling back a limited set of data. Where it starts becoming an issue is if you got two big data sets and you want to correlate those two big data sets, that requires a, a lot of, of resources and it really, most of the data virtualization software packages that are out there that advertise them as, as that. That's a use case that they are, are just not going to be able to handle. And that's where you see these other types of virtualization type solutions that are out there. So think about putting all your data in a data lake on S3. You might put Athena on top of it or Snowflake on top of it. And that way, all the data then becomes available at an SQL level layer. Now, 
a lot of people don't think of that as being like true data virtualization. Well, you've got all your data from different places and you have moved it into a centralized location, aka the data lake, but at least you can operate over the different subject areas and do that kind of on an ad hoc basis and get decent performance. But that's going to address the big data sets and doing the analysis functions on the, the, the big data sets. So you have to go look at data virtualization as in what do I need it for? And then choose whether or not these, these systems are going to be able to meet the requirements for that and let that drive the solution as opposed to what a lot of clients do is they just go buy a solution, think it's going to be this panacea and realize that there's certain use cases out there that it's not going to meet. Agree. Yeah, I think depends on who you ask. There's going to be two types of definitions, right? So there's one definition that says virtualization is basically disparate data sitting on disparate systems. You just put them in a virtualization layer so anybody can get access to it, regardless of the underlying technology. Then there's the second stream, which you talked about, which I fully agree is that the ability for you to virtualize the data from an underlying storage layer, in this case, a data lake where you've now got massive amounts of data collected in this lake. The intent is to meaningfully use it and virtualize it so people who are targeted with specific use cases can sit on top of that data and do the analysis they need to be successful, right? I think they both are true definitions. You're spot on on that. Yeah, and, and let me add one more thing. And, and this is a capability that we're seeing in Snowflake, Redshift, Azure, Synapse, uh, Oracle, is the ability to take the highly structured data in a data warehouse and then uh, merge it or use it with data that is in a data lake. And, and that's a, another type of virtualization. And you're seeing these capabilities being built into the data warehouse solutions and, and the analytical database solutions that are out there. Fantastic. I, I wish we had a lot more time, but we've got to wrap up here. Bill, this is absolutely fantastic uh, information. Thank you so much for sharing a lot of great insights here. What advice do you have for our listeners, especially executives who are thinking about the variety of topics you touched on? In, in general, I'm going to use the word unification and usage of big data. What, what do you think should be their focus going into 2021? I think they need to have a realistic data strategy. And when I say that, it shouldn't be aspirational. It should be something that really translates into actually implementation projects or a LinkedIn implementation of, of different data projects and analytical projects back to corporate initiatives. So you have an e-commerce strategy, you should have a set of projects around e-commerce analytics to support those big initiatives. The other area that they really need to focus on is when they look at whether or not I need a data lake, whether I need a cloud data warehouse, is approach it much more from a capabilities management perspective. What are the capabilities do I need? I don't need just a data lake. What I really need is the ability to bring in data to that data lake in a day from my source systems so that we can have the agility we need on the data science side to go do the analysis. If we think about COVID, the companies that were able to quickly bring that data in and analyze data, they could bring in third-party data. So there was a large set of COVID disease data that was geographically aligned so you could see where the cases were. Companies that were able to do that and do that relatively quickly were able to react a lot quicker to 
the COVID situation. So align your data strategy, align your projects to your, your business. And the other piece is when you talk about technology, talk about it from a capabilities perspective so that you can start talking about speed of value. It's not just about a data lake. It's we want to have a data lake that we can load data to in a, in a matter of a, a day or two. That, that would be the advice that I would have. Fantastic. Bill, thank you so much for joining today. This is just very, very good information. David Copperfield once said, we live in the world created by the questions we ask. So ask the right question to big data and thou shall receive the truth. I've uh, enjoyed our talk here, Bill, and, and looking forward for some great accomplishments from Proficient in the big data space and, and uh, showing the value to its customers. Appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great being able to come here and, and speak with you today. Thanks for tuning in to Intelligent Data with Arvin Morali. Subscribe to our podcast to make sure you don't miss a single episode. You can find this season along with show notes at Perficient.com or listen to this series on top podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon.